Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for November 20th, 2022 is called Give Us a King. The speaker is John Ray, and it was recorded on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So, oftentimes I stand up here when I teach, and this morning I'm going to sit down because I want to make sure that I kind of cover what I want to cover slowly. Can we all just take another deep breath? Um, Hopefully none of us have to rush out of here. Um, I know we all have things to do, but the thing that I want to talk about this morning or the things that I want to talk about are actually something I wish we could all have a a larger discussion about. So um, during this time, honestly, if you you have a thought or if you have a question or something, uh, today's a good day maybe to to bring that out. Um, So for those of you on Facebook and listening on the podcast. My name is John Ray. This is Grace Church, and we're really glad that you're joining with us. My family recently watched, we actually bought it because it was such a good movie, or we thought it was, but there's a movie out right now called 3,000 Years of Longing. has Tilda Swinton and uh, Idris Elba in it. Has anybody seen it? So, y'all have seen it. Well, it's really fascinating, and it's the story of this Tilda Swinton's character as a narratologist. I don't even know if that's a real thing. But it's a, it's a person who academically studies stories. And she's, she's on a trip and she buys this, or she's given a, a little glass bottle, and, and it turns out inside the bottle there's a genie. And it's, it's Idris Elba plays the genie. Um, really, really big genie to start with, yes. And he, he comes down, and, and, and of course, if you know the story of, of uh, 5,000 Arabian Nights, The premise of the story is the woman Scheherazade is brought into the king who has a penchant for sleeping with women and having them killed. She realizes this might be her fate, and so she begins to tell him a story that night, but she doesn't tell him the end. She says, I'll tell you the end in the morning, so it it saves her life. Well, she comes up eventually with 5,000 stories. She tells him a, a new story every night, but she won't tell him the end, and this is how she saves your life. And what, this is where the genie story comes from. That we're all familiar with. Three wishes, right? Um, whether that's a Idris Elba or a Robin Williams uh, genie giving it to you depends on you know, what you've watched. Anyway, at one point in the movie, to be free, the genie has to grant the three wishes. As soon as a person asks for the third wish, the genie can grant it, and then the genie is free. Well, Tilda's character refuses to make the last wish. She, she's trying to figure out through all the stories, like, what is the, what's the right wish? Like, I don't want to make the wrong wish. And, and, and it keeps him, basically, as her slave. And at one point, he tries to entice her by saying, why don't you just ask for immortality? You know, and she's very quick to respond, oh, no, I know how that story ends. Like, like she shuts him down with that real quick. And uh, 
And I thought about that and I thought, man, I wish, I wish we were all that aware of where our wishes ended us. As human beings, we don't wish well. We don't dream about things that are actually good for us. We don't make choices that are actually healthy. Um, I don't know how many of you get caught up, but you know, as soon as the news puts out, the lottery is now at $2 billion, right? And I hate the lottery. I hate gambling. I think it's oppressive. I think it's regressive. But I cannot help myself from thinking about what I would do with $2 billion. Like, I don't know about y'all, but I, it's literally, I can't stop myself thinking of how I would do that. Even though we know, every study has shown us one of the worst things that can happen to a person is winning the lottery. It destroys their life. It destroys their relationships. Uh, many people end up poorer eventually after winning the lottery than they were when they won it. It destroys you financially, emotionally, relationally, all these things. Yet we can't stop ourselves in a way from wishing. I wish I, I like, like we think we're going to be the exception, right? Like, yeah, I know it's tough, but man, I, I'm going to be the, I'll be, <laughs> it won't happen to me. I will be the exception. But y'all, we do that. As human beings, we, we wish wrongly. And uh, this student, or this semester, teaching students through the Old Testament, I was reminded again that the people of God are not ex are not exempt from this. As a matter of fact, we're in some ways maybe more prone to it, or at least it's more tragic when the people of God do it, because we should know better in a way. And then specifically, we wish wrong when it comes to this idea. of how, of who to order our life around, of who to give authority to in our lives. And I was reminded again as I was teaching the Old Testament students that back in Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, and I won't read the whole passage, but I'll paraphrase <laughs> it for you, but if you want to read it, it's 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel has two sons. This is the time of the patriarchy. There's no king. There's no temple. The people worship at a tabernacle. They, they have patriarchs or matriarchs. They have these people, and they, they kind of collectively make decisions. And then they have prophets who, who help offer guidance, but they're not necessarily the leaders. And Samuel is getting old, and his two sons are just train wrecks. They're dumpster fires. They're not good prophets. And the people know this, and so they come to Samuel, and they're like, look, we want a king. This, this whole patriarch thing, we've been doing this for a few hundred years. We looked around. We want to be like the other nations and just have a king. And Samuel is like, no, you don't want a king. And they're like, yeah, Samuel, we do. So Samuel goes to God, and he says, God, wh what do I do? The, the people are saying a king, and and." And he interprets the voice of God to say something that is incredibly compelling and also very heartbreaking. And God tells him, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. And he says, tell them this. 
if you get a king, this is what a king is going to do. He's going to take your men away to be soldiers and slaves. He's going to take your women away to be um, concubines and servants in the palace. He's going to take the best and first of all your fruit, all your agriculture, all your land. He's going to live in, in expensive palaces while you're going to be poorer because of this. And so Samuel goes back to the people and he tells them all this. He says, look, this is what will happen if you get a king. And they're like, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. We still want a king. And again, it's one of the most tragic things in all of Scripture um, that they choose the king. And of the 50-some-odd kings that are related during the dynasty in, that's listed in the Old Testament, there are but a handful who are even decent. And even the ones we look up to, David, Solomon, Josiah, have their flaws and do exactly what Samuel prophesied. They take their men for battle. They take their women for concubines. They take their money for the palace to support the army, support the palace, support the deal. Even the good ones do it. The enduring message that we often forget is God often gives us what we wish, even if it's not the best thing with that. But, but the bigger point is we don't choose wisely. Now, this is played out ultimately when we see the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a reason why there's so much of the narrative given to the idea that they painted king of the Jews on the cross and they put it above them and they said, hail your king, and they mocked Jesus as a king. is because I believe, ultimately, Jesus came to fulfill that, that ultimate wish and then when we actually got the king that we needed, we got the king that was supposed to be, we rejected that king. So think about the dynamic here. First of all, we wanted a king when we shouldn't. And then when we got the king we should, we rejected that king. We don't wish wisely. We don't choose wisely with this. So what's the answer to all this? Well, it's a paradox with this. Um... Jesus is a king in the most subversive way that a king can be. Jesus is actually the kind of king that doesn't take the men for war, doesn't take the women for concubine, doesn't take our riches away and we become poorer by following. Jesus is actually a, a different kind of king that reverses that order. And we see that in what Alex said in, in Philippians and and uh, those of you who are musical, and I've talked to Alex, not putting him on the spot here, but like this, this part of Philippians 2 was a song. It is what the early church sang. It was one of the early catechisms or, or catechisms of the church. This is how they taught people about what Jesus was like, what God was like, before anybody had a Bible. Is the theology of Christianity was encapsulated in these words. And they sang it, and they probably sang it every time they gathered. It's our earliest, it's one of, if it's, not, if it's not the, it's one of the very earliest songs of the church. 
is Philippians 2. So I want you to listen to it in light of what we've just talked about here. It says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourselves. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interest. Okay, we still have interests. We still have things we have to pay attention to. Be concerned not only about your own interest, but about the interest of others as well. You should have the same attitude towards one another as Jesus Christ had. And this is where the psalm starts, or the song. This is where they'd sing, Who, though he existed, I don't know the tune, Who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. That's a roaring chant. Um, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. Think about that. Think about a king who empties himself and takes on the form of a slave. By looking like other men and sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that was above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And that's what we do this morning, y'all. Hopefully we do it all the time when we meet, but especially today on Christ the King Sunday, we proclaim that Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is our Lord. And this is different than the idea of Jesus as Savior or Jesus as, as moral exemplar or Jesus as just a member of the Trinity. This is ascribing authority to Jesus. This is saying that we place ourselves under Jesus Christ's authority. We recognize no other king but Jesus. We recognize the supremacy of the authority of Jesus. Now, normally, when you do that, we've all seen the movies, and they're big, heroic movies, and they've got, you know, swelling music when they do that, and the hero strides out on the field of battle or on the steed or whatever, and all the men are like, yes, we will follow so-and-so. And they beat their chest, and they clang their swords, and they get their shields. And Usually it's right before they go in battle and kill a bunch of people. That's the profession of worldly authority. But when we do this, we actually lay down our weapons. We proclaim this authority by laying down our shields our spears, our guns. We proclaim this allegiance by opening up the gates, tearing down the walls. We proclaim this allegiance by setting a table and welcoming people to the table so that while our own needs are being met, other people's needs are being met. We do this not in fear that our best and our most is going to be taken away, but as an example, we are offered to give that to other people we are, we are instructed and in, in shown a way to share that with other people so that everybody benefits. Everybody, instead of, instead of becoming poorer because of a king, the entire society becomes richer. The entire society becomes more full. The entire society becomes more enabled with that. It's a paradoxical kingdom that we pledge our allegiance to and that we practice 
completeness. But we always remember because Jesus is king, he gets to call the shots. It's a crazy thing that as soon as we say, my life is not my own, I pledge my life to Jesus, Jesus says, thank you, wonderful, now here's your life back. I give it back to you more full. You give me your broken life, your needy life, your wanting life, your misaligned life, your disoriented life, your fractured life, and I will give it back to you whole, healed, reoriented, richer than what you gave me with that. It's a paradox that no other kingdom, no other ruler has with this. At the same time that we pledge our allegiance, we pledge our fealty, we are set free. We're set free from all the other petty kings. We're set free from all the wrong wishes, all the wrong choices, all the bad things that we've done, all the, all the ways that we've messed up our wishing. We are set free from that by our allegiance to Jesus. And we as the church are called out to live out this vision of the kingdom that Jesus is king, both individually and collectively. We do this not just in our individual lives, but we do this collectively. So we need to continually return to proclaiming Jesus as king because we are so prone to rebellion, usurping, ignoring. We're so prone to wishing wrongly. Jesus as king is the antidote to all kinds of idolatry. And if you think of idolatry as something that only happens in the Old Testament, may I kindly direct your attention to what has been happening in American politics. And let me be clear, avoiding idolatry is not a question of picking the right side, one side over the other, but altogether rejecting the temptation to put our trust and swear allegiance to any other rule than that of Jesus. Jennifer noted in our, in our teaching meeting this week something I thought was very prescient. She said, we often go for the least worst option because it is the only thing that seems attainable instead of going for the best option. Y'all feel that? You look out on the, least, on, the, on the list of options and you go, the only thing I can imagine is the least worst option. I really can't even imagine something good happening. I can't even really imagine something whole happening. I can't even imagine something healthy. So I'll choose the least worst option. We do this in our homes, our businesses, our church, our communities, our schools. I'm, I'm just, more than anything else in our political discourse, I'm appalled by the lack of imagination. I'm appalled by the lack of imagination that, that says, no, these are the things, here's the way it is, we just have to to grind out the best we can with what we've got. And I'm like, it's appalling. It's appalling with that. And so we're forced in this binary choice between a snake and a scorpion. Like, well, which bite do I think I can survive? Which one do I think I can heal from more quickly? No, it's because we wish wrongly with this. Well, so what's the key to this? How do we do this? Well, it's, look, there's no magic in this. It's right here in the text. It's right there in the Philippians. Humility is used twice. Humility in ourselves and the humility of Jesus that Jesus demonstrates. And then, honestly, that Jesus saves us. It's Jesus' humility that saves us. 
Is Jesus humbling Jesus' self to come and do this thing that saves us? So we're invited to share that humility, to emulate it, to embody it with that. Um, and before, before I say anything else, I really want you to hear me on this. I'm not talking, what I'm about to say is not another to-do list. It is not one more three steps to how to be humble or five steps to follow the kingdom or anything. It is not a to-do list, but there is a doing in it. There is an intention in it that must be followed by action. But it's not a list to be checked off. It's not some um, ladder that we have to climb. You know, each, each thing becomes progressively harder. No. It's this idea of reorienting. It's this idea of stopping doing certain things so that we are enabled to do other things with that. And again, the key to this is humility. And humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. Humility is, is simply proclaiming what really is as things are. Humility is accepting, in a way, the reality of a situation like this. Um, Eugene Peterson said this. He said, Jesus' metaphor, kingdom of God, defines the world in which we live. It, it gives, brings reality to that. We live in a world where Christ is king. If Christ is king, everything, quite literally, everything and everyone has to be reimagined, reconfigured, reoriented to a way of life that consists in obedient following Jesus. A total renovation of our imagination, our way of looking at things. What Jesus commanded in his no-nonsense imperative was repent. It is required. And again, I've talked about this before. Repentance is such a churchy word. It's such an evangelistic word. It's such a tent revival word. But repent is a get-to. Repent is the thing that says you don't have to keep acting the way you are. You don't have to keep living the way you are. You don't have to keep suffering the way you are. You are free from that. You are allowed to and enabled to turn away from that. And as Peterson put so quickly, to reimagine, reorient yourself towards this reality of the kingdom that honestly none of us wanted. None of us wished for. Comes a time, you know, when we get around Easter where we start bad-mouthing the Pharisees and we bad-mouth the people there who killed Jesus because we say, oh, they just didn't know. They just couldn't see. They wanted a political leader and Jesus came as this kind of leader. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. We're no different. We are no different. We want the strong leader. We want the strong man, the strong person who's going to come in and set things right. <clears throat> Whether that's the Lone Ranger who's going to ride into town and kill the bad guy the posse that's going to go out and save the town, the president who's finally going to end corruption and drain the swamp and bring the glorious back, whatever it is. We all want it. We're all the same way. But we're offered this kingdom that sets us free from that. Sets us free. Sets us free from that. Can you imagine a king who won't take but gives? Won't enslave, but sets free. Won't dominate, but gives liberation. 
so that we can be fully human with that. Humility is the key to this. Recognizing this. Repentance is part of humility. Saying, you know what, I don't have to do this. I don't have to live this way. <clears throat> I don't have to be constrained by this. Yes, Becky. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. So, so I'm going to repeat this because the, for the podcast and things. So Becky was making a comment that St. Brene said about um, how, how we constantly go from stimulus to response, stimulus to response, and we're driven by that. I see Lance up here nodding your head, so you can add to this. Affirmation. Okay, so we have affirmation there. Um, but and what's necessary is that we, that we even imagine pulling apart that time between the stimulus and the response so that we have agency to make an actual choice so that we can reimagine what the alternatives can be. Because we all know in the heat of the moment, we're like, it's flight, fright, flight, fight, freeze, fawn. Like we, we, we instinctually, that reptile part of our brain or however we're going to describe it comes up and, and does these things, right? And we all long to be free from that. <clears throat> but we don't know how. And, and this, is, this is what I want to say, is I think that this is what allows us to make that space. Is when we realize that what we've been given by Jesus, we realize that what Jesus is doing, that God himself, God's self, is doing for us, has done for us, will do for us. It gives us, it gives us the courage, it gives us the space, it gives us the breath to stop and go, Okay, hold on. We're in the kingdom now. The kingdom of God is here. I'm not, I don't have to be driven by these things. And just like me sitting down, I was telling Betty, one of the reasons why I do this on a message like this, that I physically sit down, is because when I'm standing up, I start to go fast. My, my pulse goes up, my heart rate goes up. I start to think more quickly and speak more quickly. And oftentimes I get out ahead of myself. Now, if I've prepared and I have stuff, then usually I can keep it on the road. Sometimes I end up in the weeds. But especially talking about this, just the posture of sitting down grounds me. It helps me to slow down. It helps me to go back and go, okay, hold on, did I find that in my notes? Did I say that? 
I'm making space between the stimulus and the response with the hunger. And, and that's, what, that's what I think. So yes, yeah, absolutely. The, the thing that Jesus sets us free from often is that tyranny of the stimulus and response. The tyranny of it. And y'all, we all know we're, we're going to walk out of here into a world that is enslaved by having to make immediate decisions and by being told that that's what you're supposed to do. Just follow your feelings. Just just do what makes you happy. Just do these things. Now, ultimately, I think, ultimately, Jesus allows us to find those things which are truly pleasing, truly happy. Don't hear me say this is, this leads us all to bad things. I think it leads us to flourishing. As a matter of fact, I think it's the, the only thing that leads us to flourishing. With that. And I want to conclude on this unless we have, yeah. Yeah, so Alex's comment, and Betty, this is going to be a fun podcast to edit um, this week. So, How Jesus revalues things. Part of reimagining is revaluing things. I tell people a lot of times, I don't understand money. I don't understand why this thing cost $100 and this thing cost $100. But I would give five times as much for this thing than this thing. Like, but it's valuing. And Jesus revalues everything. Jesus revalues things according to kingdom people, ideas, experiences. And, and Jesus values these things very differently. And I think that's what helps us is if we have that space between stimulus and response, it helps us actually assign a proper value to the stimulus. It helps us understand what is really being asked of me here. What is really being put upon me here? Is that worth responding to? And is it worth responding to in this way? Or is it worth a different kind of response? Or is it not worth a response at all? With that? Does that go with that? Um, so like I said, I want to I wrap this up with this, this thought. This year marks 35 years that I've been in full-time ministry, basically a professional Christian. Um, I feel like I've, I know, I know there's so much that I don't know. I know there's so many things I haven't seen, but I've, I'm beginning, I feel like I'm beginning to see some things very clearly that I've maybe not seen before in my life. Hopefully, to your point, I've been able to create enough space between the stimulus of all the things and understand my response. 
And one of the things that I, I'm seeing, that an aspect of humility, and remember we talked about humility being this key, repenting of doing things that we are doing that we shouldn't do, we know are bad, or we know are unhealthy, let's just use the word unhealthy, and, and, and finding the power, because Jesus values us, Jesus values our individuality, our, our personality, our ability to choice, Jesus gives us that in valuing us. That we have, we have agency, we have power to, do, to make these choices. Is that in humility, I realize that I need to, I need help in, in remembering this. I need help in orienting myself to this truth. And it feels, because it's been, in many ways and shapes and forms, it's been abused or bad-mouthed or talked down about. And it can feel legalistic, but I, I don't see it that way anymore at all. I see it as something, as an offer of freedom, an offer, an avenue to uh, actually obtain my intention. And that is this idea of, of calendar. That is this idea of how do I order my days? How do I treat time? How do I live in such a way where I am invited on a weekly and seasonally and maybe daily rhythm to imagine things as God intends? And so I do that, I do that in my day. I do that by starting with devotions in the morning. And I'm not going to go into all of it here, but I'm just I want to I want to plant the seed because we're going to talk about it a lot. How do I start my day? How do I end my day? How do I organize my week? How do I organize my weeks and my months? And next Sunday starts Advent. And so this is what I want to invite everyone here to do. Is I want you to join with me. I want you to join with the teaching team. I want you to join with this church. And examining what it would be like if we made this idea of calendaring, of ordering our lives around the rhythms of what's traditionally called the liturgical calendar, the church calendar, of, of creating a rhythm in our lives around that and making that the priority. Making Sabbath a priority. Attuning, looking at our calendar with vacations and work schedules and job demands and stuff like that and go, okay, this is great, I have all this freedom, but these dates, here are dates where we are going to say, as a church, we're all going to be together. And we know the big ones, right, like Christmas and, and Easter and things like that. But we're going to add a few in there. We're going to invite a few others. One of the things we practiced the past couple of years is a church camp out. Saying, hey, we're going, to, we're going to get this out on the calendar 12 months ahead of time, or however much ahead of time, and say, would you consider making this a priority with that? And using that as, a, as kind of a, sub, a subtext or a ground, grounding practice so that we can begin to imagine these things. So that we can begin to learn how to create that space between stimulus and response. The demands of the world and the obligations that we have with this. And again, we're not going to be legalistic about this. We're not going to take role. We're not going to do that. But we're going to invite you to do Betty and I have been working on this. We've been talking about it in different places. And there's a lot of studies along with it. Like I said, we'll talk more about it later. But I want you to, I just want to plant the seeds that that's something we're going to do. 
And Alex, if you and the worship team want to come back up. Unless, are there any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, Leah. Yes. So Leah's comment is, as someone who's, to quote, brain is going a mile a minute, which I feel you. Um, is it always necessary to stop and do that? Or is what we're talking about with calendar and, and rhythms more preparation for that? Which is, to which I would say yes, absolutely. It's, it, look, we all, know, we all know the impossibility of, of making the decision in the moment, right? We all know that actually the decision that we make has been predetermined by a string of other decisions with that. So what we're trying to do is work backwards. We're trying to get back to the base and say, hey, let's set the ground for being able to even make that space. Because if I told you right now to leave here, hey, now on Jesus says just stop in between every stimulus response and create this space, that's a burden, y'all. That would be a that would be something horrible to put on you, that expectation that you could do that. That would just, that would just fuel that try harder, give up cycle with that. That's what we're trying to break out of. Is the try harder break out, break, uh, give up cycle with that. So we're trying to lay the purpose for this. Um, and, uh, and I want to end with saying this. I am so grateful to do this with you. There is not another group of people that I would want to be doing this than with y'all. I pray daily for you. I love you. I am honored that you would sit here and even listen to me talk. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve the attention that you give me these mornings. Um, and I cherish, I cherish you. I cherish us. I cherish this time. And uh, going forward, it is not going to be easy. It's just not going to be easy. It's not easy to the more that we seek to reorient ourselves to the kingdom, the more opposition we're going to get from ourselves, from society, from all of that. It's not going to be easy. Um, but because of the love and affirmation that I feel, I'm, I'm willing to risk that. I'm willing to try to live radically different in this culture than the way it says we should live. Um, and that's because I love you. And I want us to flourish together. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.